The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. We're in the end of the sixth chapter, kind of the middle and the end, and it's the Bread of Life Part 2. We started it last week, and it's a challenging text. I told Natalie yesterday, it's one of the toughest texts to teach, and you'll see why once we get into it, because it was a stumbling block to virtually everyone who heard it. Even the disciples didn't understand it, and it's still tough for us today. So we're going to struggle through it this morning. I think you're going to like it. I hope you like it, but it's got some challenging things for us. To put us into context, to make sure everybody's up to speed, if you weren't with us last week, last week I told you that verse 59 of this chapter tells us Jesus is teaching in the middle of the synagogue at Capernaum. It's up on the screen. Uh, It's an aerial shot. The synagogue itself, kind of what we would call the worship center, the church, is on the north side. That's kind of the left side. The south side is where this story is taking place. In Jesus' day, it would have looked like that. The synagogue would have had two stories. There would have been an outer covered porch, which is where Jesus was doing this because he wasn't teaching on the Sabbath. And so if you go there today, you can go inside and see where the disciples would have sat during the synagogue service where Jesus would have stood. It's one of the few places in the Holy Lands where you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus was here, the disciples were here. This particular story took place right here. What's at the end of the picture are the two front doors. Jesus would have come in. I think he most likely would have gone to the right and stood in front of that window or maybe stood in the middle and had everybody around him or maybe out to the end. But that little porch is where Jesus taught this. So it's pretty cool. You can go stand there and know and read John chapter 6 and know those words were spoken right here uh, 2,000 years ago, and it's pretty amazing. Last week I taught you, Jesus had that phrase, I am the bread of life. And last week we did a little deep dive. We looked at the I am part and the connection to Yahweh in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus has these uh, passages on I am different things. We're going to study each of them during their study of the Gospel of John. I gave you application last week that it's necessary for our very life. We're going to drill down deeper on that. We talked about bread is suited for everyone, just like Jesus is. It's a daily need just like physical bread is, and it produces growth. And last week I told you our test of how diagnostically well we are is, do you have a hunger for food? If you don't have a hunger for food, that means you're really, really sick or you're about to die. Otherwise, your body naturally craves food. So the question diagnostically spiritually is, are we hungry spiritually in the same way? Do you hunger for spiritual things? Do you hunger for God's word? Do you hunger to hear him in prayer? If not, it means you're really, really sick or you're about to die. Exact same thing spiritually uh, as it is physically. Uh, In the conclusion last week, I gave you an additional picture of bread of what has to happen to it. it. Has to be planted, has to grow has to be harvested, has to be uh, sifted, has to be cooked, has to be heated. 
and it transforms into something different. Uh, and we talked about how we see that exact picture through Jesus Christ. So this week is really Jesus, the bread of life, part two. Because if I wanted to sequentially teach it to get it, make it uniform, I'd have to cover way too many verses and I would have made y'all miss lunch last week. So I cut it in half. As I mentioned, if I jump to the end of the story, this is a stumbling block. Virtually everyone listening to him leaves confused and said, this is not the Messiah I wanted. The disciples stick around, but even they don't get it. And Jesus calls out the one who doesn't want to get it. And we're going to talk about those three groups at the end. But I titled a couple of blocks in here, stumbling blocks into stepping stones, because if I gave you an, a written handout, which because of COVID, I can't do anymore under church rules, I would take a piece of paper and divide it in half. And on one side, we would talk about his teaching that people don't get. It trips them up. They go in wrong directions. They have wrong ideas. It's a stumbling block. On the right side of the page, you would come back to at the end of class and write in the stepping stones because each of those stumbling blocks we can use to encourage us, to edify us, to teach us. And I'm going to give you that in the very, very end of the lesson in the conclusions. So we're going to take a number of stumbling blocks. And if you want to write these down, uh, I'm going to go through six of them in the lesson. And at the end, I'm going to come back and hit all of them again and give you the stepping stones. So our first one is on the doctrine of election. We touched on this briefly last week. We touched on this briefly. We studied Nicodemus and both and the woman at the well. Uh, and he goes a little bit deeper here. I also want to back up a little bit because verse 39, which I ended on last week, really goes with verse 40, so I want to combine them. And he says in verses 39 and 40, as Jesus preaching, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I highlighted the idea, those he has given me. The idea, God the Father elects, God the Father gives, and then we respond. It's a tough, tough doctrine. People have struggled over this through today. There are massive doctrinal splits on this where people are offended by the idea that God comes to them, they don't go to God. In their idea of theology, they want to go to God, and if they can't, they don't think they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But if you study scripture, there are dozens and dozens of verses in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well that make it really clear about the doctrine of election. Let me give you two of them. The first one is 2 Timothy 1.9. I covered this back when we were covering our study on the, the teaching of the Apostle Paul. But as a reminder, it says in 1.9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done because of his own purpose and his own grace. This grace was given us in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So his election is his purpose. Why did he call you? Only God knows the answer to that, but it's not because you're a superstar uh, Christian to be. It's because we were all fallen in his divine election. He chose us for reasons we won't understand until we get to heaven. And grace is significant because it signifies it's not us. It's something we don't deserve. He doesn't pick us on intelligence, on ethical standards, on what a good person you are. 
he picks us due to his own divine will. We'll figure it out when we get to heaven. But it's a truth that echoes all the way through the Bible. Other great verse, write down Romans 8.28. The first verse is probably one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, other than John 3.16 and Psalm 23.1. But the entire passage gives us this concept of election. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, those who've been called according to his purpose. So it's not that everything in the world is intended for God's good for those who are his elect. He works all things for good, even tragedy in our lives. The reason why is, it says in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, most people get hung up on this, not because the doctrine of election, but because the other side of the coin. They're offended if God calls somebody that God did not call somebody else. And they may not know who that is, but they're offended by the hypothetical possibility there's somebody God has uh, not called and their view is, well, should everybody have the ability to come find him? It's clear from scripture. We're dead. Dead men can't hear. If dead men can't hear, then we can't hear the calling of God. He's got to come to us, give us new life, give us the ability to hear. And so before you get hung up on who God hasn't called, realize our calling in the Great Commission. We don't know who God has called. Our charge is to give the gospel to everybody. Our goal is not to differentiate. It's not to prejudice. It's not to draw lines and say, well, you get the gospel and you don't. Whoever God's called, we'll figure out when we get to heaven. But our call is to share our faith, to witness to everybody. So you can't get hung up on who God doesn't call. You just have to know in God's sovereignty, as it says here, he predestined, he calls, he justifies. Our goal is to be obedient. Last week I gave you a picture. It's the picture of the train. Humanity is not standing on the train station platform looking for the religious train that they want to jump onto. I gave you the picture last week. We're at home. God comes in on the train, then gets off the train and comes to our house and brings us back to the train station. That's the picture. And so if we want to uh, fulfill the Great Commission, we can work with God on getting people out of their home back to the train station, but it all involves God going to people's homes. That's point number one. Stumbling block number two, Jesus' humanity. Huge problem for them, huge problem for people today. The verses are 41 and 42. Therefore, the Jews, that's everybody around him, started complaining about him, or some of your translations are grumbling or murmuring about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying to themselves, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Their hang-up is they knew him. We know from other parts of scripture, his half-brothers lived in Capernaum. So at various times, Jesus would have been in this community. He would have been around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Nazareth isn't that far. You can walk it in a couple of hours. Uh, they knew Joseph before he died. They still knew his mother, Mary. They knew his uh, uh, half-brothers and sisters. 
uh, and they look at him and they say, aren't you just a guy? Today, most people on the planet will recognize Jesus as a wise man, a great teacher, someone significant from history. It's really rare to find someone that would say Jesus is a figment of someone's imagination. Among all cultures, all religions, they say he was a great man or a good teacher, a prophet or whatever their you know religious ideals say. But they're hung up on his humanity. They can't wrap their brain around the idea that someone could be 100% man and 100% God. So it is a stumbling block today. It's a stumbling block back then. Now, I'm going to give you some life lessons here in a couple of minutes about how significant that is. We've already touched on that in the first chapter of John. John does spends a great deal of time in chapter 1 talking about his divinity, but also talking about his humanity. And back in John chapter 1, I told you why that was significant for someone that understands us, that you and I can relate to as being just like us. So it can be a source of encouragement, but it's a huge stumbling block. Stumbling block number three, his claim of exclusivity. Today, this is a stumbling block because people say, oh, you're intolerant. Tolerance has become our culture's touchstone of ethical righteousness. If you want to be praised, if you want to be edified in society culture, uh, ethically, our culture says the highest virtue is tolerance. Now, ironically, the one thing they don't tolerate are the exclusive claims of Christianity. Right. So it's really, really, really contradictory. But as to every other thought process, religious ideal, the tolerance is you got to be accepting of anyone else's ideals, anyone else's religion, anyone else's concept. Jesus does not give us that ability. Let me give you a couple of verses. Verses 44 through 47, we'll take these in three bites. He starts by saying, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is saying there's not a single person on the planet Earth that can recognize him as himself, as the Messiah, as God. Unless, first of all, you got election, God the Father chooses him and draws him. And it says, if that happens, I'm going to raise him up on the last day. So he's making a sign of exclusivity that he's going to get more intense on later in the Gospel of John, where he says, I am the way, the one and only truth, the one and only way, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he forecloses every other avenue to God, every other idea of how to get to God, and people find that intolerant and therefore offensive. Notice what he says in verse 45, everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. So he then says in the second part, uh, the Father's got to draw you. But then if God gives them new life and they hear, they don't go searching off for somebody else. They don't go to Eastern religion. They don't go to some variant of Western religion. They don't go to some you know, personal spiritualism. It's saying if they truly hear the voice of God, it's a one-way path to Jesus. And then in verse 46, he says, not everyone has seen the Father, or excuse me, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. And he's speaking of himself. He has seen the Father. I assure you, anyone who believes this 
has eternal life. So in those three passages, Jesus makes it very clear to somebody who says, I've heard from God. Jesus is saying, uh-uh. Nobody else has heard from God except as God has made clear to them. So what Moses learned, what Abraham learned, what the prophets learned was verified by miracles. That's how we know it's God's word. In the rest of human culture, you've got millennium of wannabes saying, I've heard from God. I've got the special revelation from God. Anybody historically that has said that, anybody that today has said that is a big red flag. If somebody says, I've got this special word from God, be really, really careful because unless it matches perfectly with Old Testament and New Testament, it is not from God. So this idea of exclusivity is a massive stumbling block today. And anytime you share with someone that Jesus Christ is the way to get to God, one of the pushbacks is going to be that's offensive because they think all paths lead to God as long as you're earnest, as long as you're good, as long as you're truly faithful. And that's just the lie of Satan. We have to be very, very careful. Stumbling block number four, our sustainer. This is where it gets a little bit metaphysical. This is where it gets symbolic. And some of the language in here we look at even in 2020 and we go, that. That's kind of weird. I don't quite get this. Look how he moves into this. He says in verses 48 through 51, he repeats so that nobody misses it. I am the bread of life. He said it earlier. He says it here again now. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This, and I believe when he said that, he's pointing to himself. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone that anyone may eat of it and not die. So let's talk about this for a minute. He's drawing here a symbolism and a comparison and contrast. He says, I'm the bread of life. We're going to drill down on that in just a minute. He's talking about sustenance. He then says, your fathers, the children of Israel, wandering around in the desert after they came out of Egypt, ate manna in the wilderness. They got bread from God. There he's talking about physical bread. But he says they ate it short-term survival, they ultimately died physically. But pointing to himself, he says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, drawing a distinction between manna from the sky. And he says, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. So he starts by drawing a spiritual uh, illustration, a difference between what physical bread is. Because manna is just like the physical bread they could go buy in the market. And he's saying, if all, if all you're going to do is be sustained by bread, you're dying. But there's a bread that comes down from heaven that anyone can eat but not die. Second point, look at verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He says, past tense. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then he changes the tense. He said, the bread that I will give... Notice future tense, for the life of the world is my flesh. So there he's taking the symbolism and he's saying, I am bread that's going to be broken. We're going to get this at the Last Supper once we get towards the end of John. But he's given a picture that he's living bread. He came from heaven. If anyone is of him, he's going to live forever. I'm going to talk about that in just a few more minutes. 
And then he said, the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, this is a huge stumbling block to this audience. It's a huge stumbling block today because if somebody just sits down and opens their Bible and read that, they don't get it. That's a hard concept to understand. It's a hard concept to teach because this whole idea of his body, what's he talking about? How do you do that? It's getting kind of metaphysically weird and we struggle over it. Now, to jump towards the end, I'm going to give you a truth at the end that this only makes sense if God gives us illumination into what it means. Because for a lot of us, when I say it's a stumbling block and you read it and you go, yeah, I can see it, but I understand it. And that's because God has illumined us as believers to understand. But we've got to realize when we try to share our faith, when other people try to wrestle with this idea of what is Jesus saying when he says, I'm the bread of life, it's a stumbling block. They don't get it. They don't get the idea of broken bread. They don't get the idea of sacrifice. It sounds barbaric. They don't understand, you know, what could Jesus do 2,000 years ago that it wouldn't impact me because that was a long time ago and today is today, it's a stumbling block. They don't get it. I'll tie it up together for how it's a stepping stone for us, but you just have to recognize it's a stumbling block. Now, it's sustenance. It's a source of life, but it's also bread. And as you go deeper into what is the sustenance of it, it gets even more confusing and a bigger stumbling block. Notice what he says on this fifth point in verses 52 and 56. At that news, the Jews argued among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They literally thought he's talking about cannibalism. So Jesus said to them, I assure you, or some of your translations say truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. Now, we read that and we say, whoa, you just blew my mind. That sounds very cannibalistic. It continues. He says in verses 54, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Now, if we just stopped right there, you can see why this is a stumbling block. You can see why the audience would go, I don't get this cannibalism stuff. This Jesus guy just got real weird on all of us, right? You, you don't get it. Let me give you some application. It is symbolic of what we need for life. We touched on this last week. He's going a little bit deeper here because when he gives this idea of eating, he's given an idea that is symbolic of literally what we need for life because he draws those connections. He says, you've got to consume me. You have to consume all of me. And if you do that, you've got eternal life. You've got the essence of life. So he's drawn a clear picture of consuming, but he uses for an uneducated audience in the first century, this idea of eating. They can understand eating bread it's hard to understand consuming him without having your brain go to this cannibalism idea. Number two, it's symbolic of what we need daily. He's using the idea of bread because every single meal for them, just like the vast majority of our meals today, involves some aspect of bread. We got them on sandwiches. We get them as a side. We get it as 
you know, the coating on our meats. We get all kinds of bread products, right? It's a daily consumption that the aspects of it, the carbohydrates of it, give us energy, give us strength. But it's also symbolic of what we need to do. Bread doesn't just sit on the table and metamorphosize itself into your body, right? If you got bread, you've got to do something. God can give you bread, but other than just looking at it and marveling how beautiful it is, it does nothing until you act to consume it. So one of the key reasons Jesus is using this audio visual of what is bread is to give us the audio visual of knowing I can't just look at bread and get any benefit out of it. Right? I can marvel at how nice it smells. I can marvel at how beautiful it is. But until I reach out and grab it and consume it, it's just something there to look at and, one, and, and marvel at how wonderful it is. Now, I've got to digress here for about five or ten minutes because this is an aspect of current 21st century Christian teaching in a certain denomination <clears throat> And unless I drill down here, you're going to be potentially misguided by it if you ever have a conversation uh, with someone that believes this way. Let me also say I'm going to talk about Catholicism, and I don't want anyone to think that this is denigration of our Catholic friends or that I in any way think that our Catholic friends are not going to be with us in heaven. They're going to be with us in heaven. This is not an issue of salvation. It is an issue of what I think is accurate biblical teaching, and for them— uh, because of some history of papal pronouncements, some inaccurate teaching. It's the doctrine of transubstantiation. That's a really fancy word for what the Catholic Church has said for about 600 years is what happens at the Lord's Supper. When the Catholic Mass takes place and they do the Eucharist or they do the Lord's Supper, and they've got a loaf of bread that's torn off and given to you by the priest, and you put it in your mouth, and you've got a cup of wine that you drink from, pre-COVID that everybody else is drinking from, uh, their idea based on papal teaching, as I've set up on the screen, is that as a change in the substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of the blood. And this is a Catholic quote up here that says the change is brought about in the Eucharistic prayer through the efficacy of the words of Christ and by the actions of the Holy Spirit. However, the outward characteristics of the bread and the wine, that is the Eucharistic species, remain unaltered. What in the world does that mean? Here's another slide. The transubstantiation is the sacramental act by which the substance of the bread and wine is changed into the substance in the body of the blood of Christ. This great miracle, which happens in every Mass, can't be rationally demonstrated, but is accepted by faith. Both of those are Catholic slides. Now, if you talk to a Catholic priest, how they translate that is, the nature of the bread and the wine remains bread and wine. The substance of the bread and wine because the, becomes the substance of Jesus' body and his blood. Now, if that sounds like legal mumbo-jumbo, yeah. legal hocus-pocus, it's because it is. To talk about substance and nature in an interchangeable way like that 
is metaphysical that makes no sense. And so I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about my personal view of this. Once again, I'm not denigrating my Catholic brothers and sisters. You can think the, anything you want to of the bread and wine, and it cannot, and it won't impact your ultimate salvation. I just think it's an erroneous teaching. So don't take this as anti-Catholic or slamming my friends. I got law partners who are Catholics. I've got people, I, men I serve with on Christian boards that are Catholic. I'm not being anti-Catholic. I'm just teaching what I think is scripture. Point number one, it takes Christ's words too literally. The reason those two Catholic slides exist, that doctrine exists, because of what I just read you. When it says you got to consume Jesus, that's how the Catholic Church, going back to the Middle Ages, has reconciled that. Well, if Jesus says that and he gives us bread and wine, then there's got to be a, a transformation that changes the substance of bread and wine into his body and blood. It's taking it too literally. He constantly spoke in metaphors, and he's speaking of a metaphor here. He uses the phrase, I am the door, I am the vine. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I can literally show you more than 100 metaphors that Christ uses. So you'd say, well, why can't he speak plainer English? And the answer is because he wasn't speaking English and he wasn't speaking in the 21st century. He's speaking in the first century where there was very little education and he's speaking in Aramaic, which is much more limited language because it's rooted in, he in, in Hebrew. And it's got far less diversity than English nouns and verbs. So to an uneducated audience, to a group of kindergartners, he uses illustration. I'm like that door. I'm like light. I'm like salt. You are like salt. He's using illustrations that people go, oh, yeah, I know what a door is. I know what salt is. And he uses metaphors to get the uneducated's brain around who he is because they don't understand theology and they don't have a really uh, a language that has great variety in, in the different descriptions. Number two, Jesus intended it to be a symbolic memory of him. When you go into an old church that has a table down front and the table is where they put the bread and the wine on any Sunday where we worship the or we have the Lord's Supper. What does it say across the front? In remembrance of me, every single table in every single church in North America says the same thing. And the reason it says that is because of John 22 verse 19. The story in Luke about the Last Supper says, And he, Jesus, took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say, Eat my body. He doesn't say, Gnaw on my arm or my leg. Or he doesn't say, This bread, when it goes into your mouth, becomes my body. He's giving them an illustration. He literally breaks the bread. He tears off a portion for them. And he says, this is my body. And he says, eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. Now, when Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, he quotes this verbatim. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul, quoting Luke 22 verbatim, says, when he said this in remembrance of me, every time we... 
eat in the same way we shall do in remembrance of him. So Paul in 1 Corinthians ties it back and says, he told them, remember me. And Paul says a couple of decades later, when we do it, we're supposed to remember him. So it's not an issue of eating him or drinking him. It's in remembrance of him and the symbolism of what the bread is. Point number three, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, isn't mentioned in the Gospel of John. If somebody says to you that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament that's essential for your salvation, if that was true, it'd be in the Gospel of John. If they say to you that it's the essence of eating and consuming the body and blood of Christ, you can say, well, if that's true, don't you think the one that wrote about him being the bread of life would have included that in his gospel? Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us the Last Supper. John does not. So you can't hyper-spiritualize the Last Supper. It's good. It's important, but it's intended for us to remember him to bring us back to the reality of him spiritually, it's not a metamorphosis of body and blood. Number four, the early church fathers treated the body of Christ as symbolic. I've got a mountain of books in my office, and I went and looked up this week every single one I could find on their comments on John chapter 6 and, and the Last Supper. And every single one, referenced the symbolism of the Last Supper. Origen, Tertullian, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr. I mean, there's a long list. There's dozens of them that were the early church pastors that in the second century knew John and knew some of the earlier apostles. In the third, fourth, and fifth century, uh, taught what they had been taught, and they were all consistent. This is symbolism. It's not really the body and blood of Christ. Quote from the lawyer, my favorite lawyer from antiquity, writing about 205, said, having taken the bread and given it to his disciples, Jesus made it his own body by saying, this is my body. That is a symbol of my body. There could not have been a symbol, however, unless there was first a true body. An empty thing or a phantom is incapable of being a symbol. When mentioning the cup and making the new covenant to be sealed in his blood, he affirmed the reality of his body. For no blood can belong to a body that is not a body of flesh. The guy he was writing about was a heretic named Marcion who said Jesus was 100% God that just looked like a man. He really wasn't a man. And so Tertullian, the lawyer's response to that was, that's a lie, because for it to be a symbol of his body, he had to have a real body. And Origen and Clement and all these other guys I mentioned all say the exact same thing. If you don't believe me, I'll make you a long list with quotes and page numbers. Every single New Testament father that I could find in the first five centuries treat this as symbolic of his body, not literally his body. Next point. The doctrine is a relic of medieval Catholicism. The doctrine of transubstantiation did not come about right after John wrote Revelation and died. It didn't pop up until 1565. We know the exact date because it's in a papal document called a bull in Nuctum Nobus, that was written right after something called the Council of Trent, where they came up with this idea, and then the Pope 
put what the bishop said in the Council of Trent into a papal <laughs> mandate and said, this is Catholic doctrine for all time. So I can show you the date and the actual document was the first time this was mentioned, and it's just a relic of medieval thought. Last point. If transubstantiation was true, if the idea that when you consume the bread and the blood, I'm consuming literally the body of Christ, one would expect to historically see the power of the person of Christ revealed where it's practiced and taught the most. In other words, if I could take literally a piece of bread and literally a cup of, of wine and somehow through a priest saying the right prayer and giving it to a parishioner, make it the physical body of Christ in substance and the blood of Christ in substance, you would expect that to be transformative, right? You would expect it to be the greatest evangelists, the greatest missionaries, the people that had the greatest insight biblically, the people that are the strongest in their faith. But historically, that is not what you see. You don't see that anywhere in the world. You don't see it in any culture in the world. You see a ritual that historically is not transformative. You don't see greater teaching, greater preaching, greater righteousness. You don't see anything other than people going through a ritual. So those are my issues with that. Once again, please don't take that as saying we're not going to be in heaven with our Catholic friends. Uh, I think it's just a misteaching. Uh, and it is what it is, but because it comes from John 6, I had to stop and digress for a few minutes. So thank you for letting me digress. Now, last point, spirit and life, another stumbling block. Jesus here gives us the key to the entire passage, because at this point, the disciples are going, I don't get what he's saying yet again. Everybody else in the audience goes, who is this guy we're following? I don't get it. Jesus gives some explanation. Verse 60, therefore, when many of his disciples, the Greek word there doesn't mean the 12, it means everyone who's following him, heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it or who can understand it? 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples, that's not the 12, that's the masses that are around him in that little church, were complaining about this, ask them, does this offend you? 62. Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, when I first read that, I thought that was a reference to his ascension after the crucifixion and resurrection. Because when it talks about if you were to see the Son of Man ascending, wouldn't you believe that? After I really, really dug into this, after I really prayed, after I cross-referenced what a number of other scholars uh, had said about this over the centuries, I came to a different understanding. What Jesus was saying to everybody around him is, if you don't understand this, what would you think if I just right now went back to where I came from? Would that make you believe if right now I just got up and went right back to heaven, God just sat me straight back up into heaven. He's basically saying to them, if you don't believe me now, if I went away up into heaven, you may believe me, but you wouldn't have me. So he's saying, what's the difficulty here? I'm here. You can ask me questions. You can spend more time with me. 
right? So when they said the teaching is hard, who can accept it? It has the tenor of disgust. They're starting to pack their stuff up. They're putting their cloak back on. They're lacing up their shoes. They're getting ready to go. And Jesus said, would you rather have me go back to heaven so you can figure this stuff out on your own blind? He's throwing it back in their face saying, I'm here. Ask me whatever you want. Spend some more time with me. You know your Bible? Ask me some questions about it. Something I just said? Ask me some questions about it. They pack up ready to leave. And he's saying, well, if you're leaving, what would you think if I left too? And he's throwing it back in their face to say, if you got any questions, all you got to do is stick around. I'm here in person to answer all of your questions. And it's the same thing that's true for us today. Notice he says in 63, he gives us the ultimate answer to all of this. The Spirit, reference the Holy Spirit, is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So when he references the Holy Spirit, he doesn't do some deep teaching on it because they wouldn't be able to wrap their brain around it. But he says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Father himself, gives life, gives understanding, gives joy, gives all the different things in life we love. The flesh, you could translate that the mind, your reason, your rationality, your education doesn't help at all. He says, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. So in his words, he's saying, if you don't get it, the Holy Spirit's the one that can help you about it. Now, I'm going to give you some application here later about the proper role of the Holy Spirit, but don't lose sight of the fact that he says, I'm here and I can answer all your questions. For those people in the synagogue at Capernaum, his physical presence was the ultimate teacher source to get the answer to all those questions that they didn't understand and they're ready to walk off. For us, we still have that because of verse 63. His words memorialized through the Holy Spirit and preserved for 2,000 years. And the Holy Spirit that dwells in us gives us the ability today to do the exact same thing. You understand something in Scripture? He's here to answer your questions. You don't get something in your life? He's here to answer your questions. We live life confused. We don't understand the world. We don't understand politics. We don't understand why companies do things to us that we don't like. We don't understand why our neighbors do things to us we don't like. All of these questions in life, when Jesus says to them, I'm here, ask me. Would you rather me just go up to heaven where you can't answer them? And then in verse 63, he's saying, my words are spirit and life. The Holy Spirit gives you the access to live the fullest life God intended you to live. Access it through the Holy Spirit. Now, before I get to the application, we've got some different reactions. We've got three different reactions, and these are fascinating to me. First one is pack it up and leave, verses 64 and 66. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said to the audience, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Verse 66, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. 
That's the audience in the synagogue. They saw him feed 20 to 25,000 people with granola bars and sardines. They follow him. They've heard the story. There's probably some of them that had the wine at the wedding feast of Cana. There's some that would have seen the miracles. There's some that would have heard the stories. And because they were confused, they just pack up and walk away. And the tenor in the Greek language here is they never came back. I think there were some lingering. Mary Magdalene may have been lingering by this point. We don't know. There may have been a few others that were lingering. The vast majority of them said, we don't understand and we're leaving. Great life lesson. When you share our faith, it doesn't mean everybody's immediately going to understand just because we understand. We got to be faithful. We got to share. If other people don't understand, realize if they didn't understand Jesus, why do you take it personal if they don't understand you? Jesus is saying God's got to open their heart. If he doesn't, that's not your problem. Jesus is saying, I am me. How much more do you want to be able to understand truth? And they still didn't get it. And Jesus says, God's got to open their eyes to hear me or to hear you. Second group, the disciples themselves, verses 67 and 69. Therefore, Jesus said to the 12, don't you want to go away too? Or you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, this is fascinating because the audience wants to leave because they don't understand. Jesus says, you don't want to go away too, do you? And the response, if they understood, would be, no, we get it. You're the bread of life. Simon Peter is awesome. Because he's saying, we don't understand either, but we know who you are. We'll stick around. We'll ask you questions. We just want to be near you because you are the Holy One of God. So the life lesson is God doesn't call us to always understand. God calls us to stay close to him. We don't understand why we get sick. We don't understand why loved ones die. We don't understand God's timing always. We don't understand why we lose our jobs, why we have financial stress, why relationships fracture. We live life confused. The disciples spent three years confused. I'll show you at the end of John, the light bulb didn't go off until Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Then the light bulb went off for three years. They stuck with him, but they did not understand. And that is clear as day in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if those guys eating every meal with him, hearing every word, sleeping next to him on the ground in a sleeping bag, didn't understand, why do you feel like you're not a strong Christian just because you don't understand either? The answer is stick close to him and you will. So Peter's got the right answer. He doesn't understand either, but he's just staying close to him because he's the Holy One of God. Third person, the pretender. This is 64 through the end of 71. There's a reference to Judas in 64, so I picked it up again. There's some who don't believe because Jesus knew from the beginning, those who would not believe, and the one who would betray him. Then I jump to verse 70. 
Jesus replied to them, this is after Simon Peter speaks, didn't I choose you the 12, yet one of you is the devil? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make it clear that even up until the Last Supper, the disciples did not know which one of them was the betrayer. They didn't know who he was referring to when he said the devil. They all said, is it me? Is there something you know about me that I don't know about myself? They did not know it was Judas. John is writing five decades later. With five decades of hindsight, he adds the editorial in verse 71. He is referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to portray him. John did not know that at the time. None of the disciples knew that at the time. But the picture for us is the pretender, the person who sounds like they're Christian. They sound like they're in favor of Christians. They go through the hoops of pretending to be a Christian. They may even attend church. Does not mean they are called by God. Now, it doesn't mean we walk around with paranoia. Doesn't mean we walk around pointing to people going, I think they're Judas or I think they're like Judas. It just means we got to be careful. It means we focus on ourselves. We don't focus on other people in a condemning, labeling kind of way. It just means we recognize there are people who have claimed to be Christians that clearly aren't. There are people that give lip service to Christianity that definitely are not. And in the business world, this is a problem. In the political world, this is a problem. And we've got to pray for discernment. God, help me figure this out. Let me end with some application because I told you I titled my lesson in terms of application, stepping stones or stumbling blocks to stepping stones. I gave you all those things from election to sustenance to bread to spirit truth and everything in the middle. Let me give you some application. Those are stumbling blocks historically. Let me tell you all of these are stepping stones to get us closer to the life Christ wants us to live. I'll give you one slide for every point that I gave you that was a stumbling block. First stumbling block I gave you was election. Huge stumbling block for the world. For us, it's a source of strength. Because he chose me as his, I am secure knowing I'm his child forever. Election means I can't lose my salvation. Once God chooses me, once the creator of the universe chooses me, I can't change who I am. Take creation, for example. He makes a planet. Can't change. He makes the universe. Can't change. He makes anything, a blade of grass. It can't change. He makes you and me his child. Can't change. We are always his child. I don't think this means we can go do whatever we want to. It's not the Russian monk Rasputin. You can sin as much as you want and party as much as you want and you're okay. It can fracture relationship. We can have fractured parental child relationships where there is no relationship, but you're still a child. You can do that with God. You can have no meaningful relationship with what the, our, our guest pastor said this morning. God's not going to talk to you if he already knows you're going to be disobedient. That was a great word. You can have a fractured relationship with a parent but still be the child, but it doesn't mean you're ever going to lose your child status. So our election means our security. Point number two, I taught you Jesus' humanity. Stumbling block for the world because they think he's just a man. 
because Jesus was just as human as you and I are, my Savior, our Savior, understands every single physical, mental, emotional, relational, financial, and vocational stress and pain that we have. Whatever you struggle with, when you pray because Jesus was human, he knows how scary it is. He knows how fearful it can be. He knows how maddening it can be when you don't have an answer from God the Father. He can totally empathize, and because he can empathize, he can care for me and you. Because when we want to pull up the covers and say, because of my health issue, my money issue, my relational issue, I just want to pull up the covers and be all by myself. We do that because we think nobody else understands. Right? We think we're the first person to experience that. When we know our Savior has experienced that, then it's tremendous strength for us. The book of Hebrews has an entire chapter on this, and it says his humanity gives us the ability to understand in every way what we experience. Point number three, exclusivity. It's a stumbling block because it's offensive because of tolerance. For us, it's a stepping stone because my faith is based on Jesus' true truth. That's a seminary word that means it's true squared, right? True with exclamation points. It's absolute truth. Learning, living, and treasuring his truth should be my greatest treasure. So if we've got access to true truth, learning Bible, praying that he gives me wisdom, living Bible, living in prayer, and treasuring my Bible— and treasuring my prayer time ought to be my greatest treasure. The reality is we pray when we're in trouble or when we think we have to like a meal. We don't pray like it's a precious gem, a treasure that we would handle like the hope diamond if it was in our house. We don't treat the Bible like it's the biggest diamond ever found in the world we treat it as something we can open it if we want to and take it to church when we want to and learn from when we want to. We don't treat it like a true treasure. And if we treat his word as treasure, then it should become our greatest treasure. Point number four, our sustenance, the source of our life. Because he is my bread of life, I need to go to him every day for his filling, his sustaining and is satisfying spiritual food. I told you last week, I eat all the time. I got a fast metabolism. I literally can eat five meals a day and still one a sixth, right? And if I don't get one of those, I get hungry and a little fussy, right? It ought to be true for us spiritually. If you don't get spiritual breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you ought to be hungry and something ought to drive you back to it. I miss my quiet time. I miss my prayer time. And it's not something that's optional. You ought to have a state of spiritual hunger that drives you back to it. Unless we are incapacitated, like in a hospital recovering from surgery, we ought to have a spiritual hunger that says, if I'm not getting my spiritual breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I'm getting fussy. Something's messing up with my calendar. Something's messing up my priorities. I got to get back to it. Point number next, our bread. To eat of Christ's body daily, I got to remember him, 
I've got to consume that which is him, and I've got to cherish his person through his truth. So I got to remember him, which is what he said in Luke chapter 22, do these things in remembrance of me. I've got to consume him. That's John chapter six. How do I consume Jesus Christ? Read his word. If you got a red letter Bible, it's really clear what he wrote. If you don't have a red letter Bible, you can read what other people wrote about him because the Old Testament is all about him and the New Testament's all about him. So read what he said or read what others under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said about him. And then most importantly, I cherish his person. I cherish his wisdom. I cherish his struggles. I cherish his frustrations. I cherish his truth. Everything about him I cherish because his humanity makes him my ultimate high priest. Final points, spirit and life, because the Holy Spirit is not available to do my bidding. I live daily knowing he is inside me to shape, guide, and perfect me in accordance with God's will. We seem to think the Holy Spirit is our tool, our messenger, our aspect of the supernatural that can do amazing things that we want. And those things are true if that's what God's will is. It's through the Holy Spirit that Moses could divide the Red Sea. It's through the Holy Spirit that God could do amazing things with the judges and the kings and the prophets. It's what enabled Jesus to do what he did. It's enabled Paul and John and Peter to do what they did. But it's got to be God's will. And so he's not my messenger boy. He's not my genie in the bottle. God do this. God heal this. God solve this. The Holy Spirit's inside me to change me, not to be my tool for doing what I want to do. And I want God to bless it. So if the Holy Spirit's inside of me to knock me back into the lines, to keep me going where I'm supposed to be going, to keep me doing what I'm supposed to be doing, his goal is to shape me which means cutting off the things that God doesn't want there to guide me, which way am I taking? Am I zigging or am I zagging? And to perfect me, to make me more Christ-like in my thoughts, in my language, and what I'm doing in accordance with God's will. So spirit and life can be a stumbling block to those that don't get it, to those that want it to be God's way of shaping, guiding, and perfecting him, then that's perfect. That's tough sledding. That's tough text. You understand why it's a stumbling block? You understand why they all left? Even the disciples didn't get it. So if you're going, well, I got a little bit of it, Chris, then that's good. If you didn't, pray about it. Read it some more. Spend some time in it. The bread of life we will build upon. He's given us building blocks, and he starts with the most simple. What's the simplest thing to understand? A loaf of bread sitting on your table. He's going to get a little more complex there, and he's going to build on it. We're going to contrast with it later on. But next week, we're going to go back out of Galilee, back into Jerusalem, and we're going to get a little bit more truth and a little bit more insight. I'm not sure how many weeks we're going to spend on John 7. I could spend two or three. We'll figure it out over the next two weeks. Uh, But next week, it's Jesus in Jerusalem, so we'll get through at least the first dozen or so verses. uh, And I think you'll enjoy it because there's some really good stuff in John 7. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study your word. It's a cold day. It's a rainy day. A lot of people are still at home because of the virus, and we just thank you for bringing us together, some in person, some uh, by video. 
some by audio in the podcast and wherever you've brought us together, Father, we just pray that you would use this lesson to remind us of what is a stumbling block to the world through the illumination of God the Father, through the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can understand who you are, why we're here, why everything around us is going on, where even if we don't know the literal answers to questions, we know what we're called upon to do, which is to share our faith, to be faithful, to spend time in the Word, to spend time in prayer, to be the children that you want us to be, the sons and daughters adopted into your kingdom, to be a force in a world that so desperately needs to see you through us. We thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for the privilege. Continue to protect us and guide us and lead us. Thank you for this class and the chance to be together. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen. Thank you all. See you next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.